This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Gracious Father, we do thank you for your grace. We thank you for that grace which is found in our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the grace of your Holy Spirit. And now, Heavenly Father, this morning we ask for more grace. We ask for your grace that we might be able to understand and be captured by this amazing grace. Grant us now the grace of your Holy Spirit so that we might see and ponder and be transformed and changed by your everlasting grace. For Jesus' name's sake. Amen. The word grace is very, very popular. Indeed, we hear the word grace uh, in many different contexts. But especially perhaps the word grace these days in our, in our culture has been focused on something like beauty or elegance. That is what, uh, what really at least our culture tends to think when they think about the word grace. Somebody like the late Princess Diana, a woman, people have said, of grace because she's elegant, she dresses well. She's got that sense of, uh, sense of grace, as people put it. That is certainly what the, our culture might think of about grace. The other way our culture seems to think about grace is, well, you're, you have a period of grace when you're let off something. So, for instance, you've got a bank bill to pay or a credit card bill to pay, and you have a period of grace before you're supposed to pay it, i.e. you don't have to pay it during that time. Those are the ways our culture uses the word grace. But of course, grace is also a very big biblical word. Um, We've sung about it. We as Christians in the church talk about it. The Bible talks about it all the time. But what is this word grace? What does it actually mean? And that is the subject today of the fourth of our Reformation alone, salvation by grace alone. But what does that actually mean? And this morning we're going to have a look at grace. Now, of course, given in the Bible that grace is so uh, so so prevalent, so much in the Bible at so many different times. We could have chosen many different passages to talk about grace. But one of the key passages we have about grace is, of course, that famous passage we've just had read from Ephesians chapter 2. From Ephesians chapter 2. So if you would, please, like to have Ephesians chapter 2 open in your Bibles. Ephesians 2. Now, Paul wrote Ephesians to the church in Ephesus and indeed some other churches in the area. And Paul writes Ephesians in order to focus their minds upon the key thing that everything in heaven and on earth is going to be summed up and come under the headship and unity of Jesus Christ. The key 
key uh, verses in Ephesians. There's Ephesians chapter 1 verses 9 and 10. That everything will be fulfilled and summed up in Jesus Christ. But Paul in both chapter 1 and in chapter 2 focuses on this thing we're going to be focusing on this morning. That is God's grace. At the end of chapter 1, Paul talks about the amazing thing that has happened, that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead and now seated at the right hand of God in heaven. That is actually at the end of chapter 1. But now in chapter 2, he asks the question, how can we too be seated with Christ in heaven? That is the key to chapter 2 of Ephesians. And at the heart of chapter 2 of Ephesians, and really this is what I want to concentrate on this morning, is verses 4 and 5. That's, if you like, the summary of chapter 2 of Ephesians. So let's have a look at that together. This is what Paul writes. But because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy. Now isn't that a lovely, amazing phrase? And it actually harks back to the Old Testament. It has echoes in the Old Testament. You remember that first reading we had, our responsive reading from Exodus chapter 34. And that is absolutely central to the Old Testament when it talks about who God is. And God, is the God of the Old Testament, we must remember, is not this harsh, cruel God that some people think he is, opposed to the God of love of the New Testament, but rather this God is a God whom, as he says, is a God of great love and who is rich in mercy. And that's what grace actually means in the Old Testament. It means something so amazing and unexpected and so, well, overflowing with with goodness and riches and wealth. It is like as if somebody gives you a gift and keeps on giving you vast and unexpected and amazing gifts. That is something like money after money after money, if we could put it in our terms. And perhaps the best example of grace in the Old Testament is in the story of Ruth. You will know the story of Ruth that Naomi has lost both her husband and both her sons. Ruth has lost her husband. And therefore, Naomi says to her daughters-in-law, look, those obligations are broken. You no longer need to care for me as a mother-in-law because your husbands are dead, and anyway, you, you're not Israelite, so go back to your own country. Go back to Moab. Uh, I don't expect anything from you. And how does Ruth respond? She responds with grace. That is, she says, no, Naomi, I'm going to be with you, and I'm going to be with you wherever you are until you die. And Naomi is astonished. You see, that is real grace. It is a kindness that goes beyond obligations. It is one that actually means that that Ruth will stick to her mother-in-law and show her kindness 
and the riches, something so wonderfully unexpected. That is what Paul actually means here in, in Ephesians as well. But notice how Paul in the New Testament focuses upon that grace. Look at verse 5. He made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. And then he adds that little summary statement. Look at it. It is by grace that you have been saved. You see, what Paul means is this, that we were once dead in our sins. That's what he's actually been talking about in verses 1 to 3. That he started by saying you were dead in your transgressions and sins. That is, we were basically broke God's law and God has sentenced us to spiritual death. And then Paul goes on to explain why this spiritual death of sin is such a big matter. It's a big matter because there are three things, three key things about sin that makes us dead. First of all, he says, we've followed the course of the world, the ways of the world. That is, our mindset has been trapped and conditioned by what the world is. In Paul's day, that would be the world of the Roman Emperor, Empire. You know, to be a Roman citizen, to do things according to Rome and the values of success and wealth and pride and honor. And those values, of course, are in our world today. That we, that our world, world focuses on things like success and wealth and status and honor. And Paul says that's the sort of thing that kills us before God. But the second thing that kills us before God, Paul says, is actually the powers of evil, Satan, the devil. Look at what it says in verse 2. And you used to follow the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. That is, we human beings before Jesus Christ are under the rule of the evil one. That is why. Sin is such a terrible and awful thing. And that actually has an impact upon ourselves, our heart and our will and mind. Because actually it means that we are trapped by evil desires. Have a look at what it says in verse 3. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. And the most terrible thing about being dead in sin is that, Paul says, we were by nature deserving of the wrath of God. God's terrible anger has come upon us. What does that then mean? Well, dead people cannot save themselves. Dead people cannot choose. Dead people can do nothing. That is the awful and terrible thing about death. All of us have had loved ones who have died. And the terrible thing is that they're gone. That they have no life in them. That they cannot, therefore, have a will, freedom, or choice. So what does God do? Well, he raises us, he resurrects us 
to life in Jesus Christ. That's what it means when Paul says he made us alive with Christ. Just as Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead on Easter Sunday by the great and amazing grace and power of God, so Paul says that same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead on that day is is at work in us. Once, Paul says, we were dead, utterly, utterly dead, but now we're in spiritual life. And that isn't because we have chosen that. Dead people can't choose anything. Rather, it means that God has done it all. And that is what Paul says, why it is by grace you have been saved. We are in a state of salvation today. Why? Because of God's grace. That is God's gift, God's benevolence, God's favor. It is God's act and God's act alone, says Paul. That means that we are alive and seated in heaven at this very moment with Jesus Christ. And that means it is all of grace. Then Paul goes on in verse 7 to underline what grace is. Have a look at verse 7. In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. That is, grace is not simply for today. Grace is actually for tomorrow. Grace will go on forever and ever and ever. And that means, well, that that when we get to heaven, when Jesus returns in glory, when there's a new creation and a new earth, that grace will be shown and go on and on and on and on forever. And we will enjoy and delight in that grace. And every creature in that new creation, angel and human, will actually see and experience the grace and the love and the kindness and the favor and the gift of God himself. So let's not think, says Paul, that grace is just for this life. No, grace goes on forever and ever and ever. And then in verse 8, he repeats himself. Do you see that? For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. It is almost as if he's, he's saying, I'm repeating myself because I don't want you to miss this. This is so important that I've decided to repeat it. Notice what it says. Now there's a little bit of a difference in the original. For it is by the grace, the grace of God, a grace so amazing, says Paul. You have been saved. You're in the state of salvation. And then he adds something more. Through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. That means that everything is the gift of God. Everything. It is that rescue in Jesus Christ, it is that resurrection in Jesus Christ, it is grace today, it is grace tomorrow, and it is by faith. And that means that faith itself is a gift. It has to be, isn't it, given what Paul has said, if we're dead... Well, how can we exercise faith? God must give us the gift of faith so that we can trust in Jesus Christ and be saved. That is basically what Paul thinks the grace is about. And notice what he says. 
It is not from ourselves. There is nothing we contribute to our own salvation except our sinfulness. There is nothing we contribute to our own salvation except our sinfulness. The whole process of salvation from beginning to end is all of the gift and the favor that is the grace of God. And then he has an application in verse 9. Have a look at the application in verse 9. Not by works, so that no one can boast. We focused on the not by works thing when we looked at justification by faith alone. But here Paul wants to underline it even in the subject of grace. It is not by anything we do that we are saved. It is all of God's grace. That is basically what he means. Why? So that no one can boast. Because after all, if we made even a little bit of a contribution to our salvation, it would not be of grace alone. And we could actually say, well, I've done something, a little bit, maybe. I've been good, I've, I've been wise, because I've been able to recognize Jesus Christ and choose Jesus Christ for myself. And Paul says, no, that is boasting. That is human pride and arrogance. It belongs to God and God alone and his glory that we are saved by grace alone. That is, if you like, a little summary of what the Bible has to say about grace. Um, We could, of course, go through the entire Bible and talk about the glory and the magnificence and uh, the richness of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. But let us now go on in time a bit. And this time we're not, we're not going to go to the Reformation. We're going to go and look at a man called Augustine, who lived actually in the fourth century, i.e. a few hundred years after the Apostle Paul. And you might say, Ro, why are we looking at somebody in the 4th century rather than one of the great reformers of the 16th century like Luther and Calvin, as we've looked at in previous weeks? The reason why we're doing this is, well, because all the reformers said our authority and our teaching comes from the Bible alone. That's our authority. But there is somebody who has lived in the past who actually taught us about real grace, and that one is Augustine. Indeed, Martin Luther was an Augustinian monk. If you read the writings of John Calvin, virtually on every page he quotes Augustine and says, as Augustine rightly said, or something like that. In other words, the father of the Reformation in many ways, and especially the Reformation's teaching about salvation by grace alone, is this great man, Augustine, and there's a picture of him. Augustine was a North African. He lived in North Africa, and he was reputed to be, well, the cleverest man of that time. He was an astonishing genius, and indeed, even today, people have said that the whole of theology is just a footnote to Augustine. That his impact upon Christianity is second to none. 
And certainly he had that impact upon the Reformation as well. And therefore, if we believe in salvation by grace alone, we might not know it, but actually we're following in the footsteps of Augustine. So let's have a look at this guy, Augustine. And Augustine, later in his life, after he had become a Christian, wrote an amazing and great book. It's called The Confessions. The Confessions. And in it, he both confesses his own sin and confesses the grace of God. And the whole book is actually written, and it's quite a long book, is written as a prayer to God. Deliberately so. He wants it, if you like, to actually be a dependence of of grace upon God himself. And the first line of this great and famous book is is absolutely beautiful. And in that first line, Augustine says this, and it's a very famous quotation. You have made us for yourself. That is, of course, he's talking to God here. And our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Isn't that beautiful? What Augustine is saying, we all have this sense of restlessness, of this sense of, the sense of not being at peace. We don't have peace until we find rest and refreshment and peace in our Lord Jesus Christ. That is, of course, what Jesus says. Come to me, all you who are who labor and are heavy laden, and I will grant you rest. But then Augustine went to ask, why is it that we are such restless creatures? And his mind went back to when he was a boy, a teenage boy, and he had some friends as well. And his father had a very nice vineyard and some fruit trees in his at his farm. But the neighbor's farm had a pear tree in it. So what Augustine and his teenage friends did is that they went across to the neighbor's pear tree and stole a few pears. And then they ate a few, but they threw most of them, he says, to the pigs. You might say, well, as sins go, that wasn't really a very big one. You know, boys will be boys, teenagers will be teenagers. It's just a little thing that's just gone wrong. Never mind, we can move on. But not for Augustine. He asked, why did I do such a thing? Wasn't a big sin. He concedes that. Not a big sin. Not like if he murdered someone or, 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 or was so, so starving that he had to steal the pears in order to feed himself. No. He'd had a nice meal. His father's, uh, vineyard had much better fruits and pears than the one in the, in his neighbors. So why did he do it? After all, he, they threw most of the pears to the pigs. Why, asked Augustine, did we do such a thing? And his answer was, there is no good reason for my sin. I did it because I loved the sin. 
I was in love with myself, and I loved the sin. There is no rhyme or reason to sin. Now that is very much like the Apostle Paul. Indeed, one of the Psalms says about sin, they did it without reason. And Augustine's mind, deliberately by focusing on this pear tree, takes us back to another tree and another garden, the Garden of Eden, and what Adam did. What did Adam do? He stole a fruit that did not belong to him, indeed, which God had said, you must not eat. Why did Adam do it? For Augustine, there was no good reason for it. He did it because he loved himself and loved the sin. So what Augustine is doing is comparing these two trees, the pear tree from which he stole and the tree in the Garden of Eden from which Adam stole. Sin, according to Augustine, is theft. It is stealing from God himself. And the consequences of that, said Augustine, is, well, the whole human race is involved in Adam's sin. The punishment that is Adam's and the guilt that is Adam's is because we are the children of Adam and Eve means that we also are punished and are guilty for the sin of Adam and Eve. That, says Augustine, is the tragedy of the human race. The theft of the fruit by Adam, repeated time after time in trillions of sins ever since then. And then Augustine also describes one of his friends, this is now when he's a young man, a little, little bit grown up, a very good friend he had called Alpius. Alpius was a good, fine, moral young man. He hated the normal practices of Roman society. Indeed, he was hated and disgusted by the Roman practice of going to the games. Uh, those games where you, where you had gladiators fighting one another and all the rest of it. He thought it was disgusting and cruel and nasty, so he refused to go. Until one day, basically, his friends persuaded Alpius to go and watch these gladiatorial games. So against his better instinct, he actually went. He went. But he decided to keep his eyes closed during the entertainment so he would not be corrupted by the gladiatorial games. And uh, if you've ever seen the picture Gladiator, you will know what it's basically like. But then, once, as the crowd were, were roaring and cheering, he opened his eyes and he saw the blood and the gladiators fighting. And from that moment, he was hooked. He was addicted. His whole life changed, said Augustine. He came out a changed and different man. And from that, 
Augustine, well, brings out Paul's teaching in Romans 7. The good that I want to do, says Paul, that I do not do. But the evil that I do not want to do, that I do. For Paul and for Augustine, sin is so internal that what we want to do, the good we want to do, the good that Alpius wanted to do, he could not do. And the evil that he did not want to do, to enjoy and delight in the blood and the violence of the games, that he actually delighted in. That, says Augustine, is the horror and the tragedy of the human race. We do what we do not want to do, and we cannot do what we want to do. Our will is trapped. That, said Augustine, is the utter tragedy of the human race. But you see, Augustine felt that so desperately, so, so desperately, that even when he heard the gospel, he says he could not turn to Jesus Christ. He was still trapped in his old life in the sin. And actually it happened, said Augustine, in another garden. There was another garden, and when he was thinking about his own sinfulness and pain, why cannot I choose Jesus Christ? that suddenly there was a voice in the background, and that voice said, take up and read, take up and read. So he took up the book that was next to him on the bench in the garden, and he read these words from Romans. The night is nearly over, the day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. At that moment, God's grace entered the life of Augustine through the word, and he was a changed man and became the greatest Christian of his time, and perhaps of any time. That was his conversion. And then after his conversion, he wrote in his great book, The Confessions, about this to God. Command what you will, and give what you command. Basically, what Augustine meant was this, look, the Bible is full of God's laws and commands as to what he wants us to do. That's what God wills. But actually, we can't do it. Therefore, you have to give us the ability to do it. In other words, we're dead unless grace comes into our life. Now, there was another person who lived at the same time as Augustine, a British monk called Pelagius. That British monk Pelagius actually lived in Tuscany, in the lovely vineyards of Italy. And Pelagius was outraged at Augustine's theology of grace. He said, how can that be? How can that be? Augustine, you're actually undercutting moral obligation. If you say it's all of grace, well, 
we're not going to obey God. If God gives us commands, he expects us to obey them, and we have the ability to obey them. You're wrong, Augustine. For Pelagius, you see, and he's very modern in this way, grace was three things. It was God's gift of freedom to human beings. It was the good example of Jesus Christ, and it was good laws for God to obey. And he says, why would God give these laws unless we can obey them? So, obey them. It seems very simple and clear, according to Pelagius. You see, for Pelagius, if you like, grace was the wind in the sails of our boat. That is, well, grace helps us along the right path, but it's up to us to sail the boat to the right destination, that being God. So really, it's up to us. Grace means that it's up to us. Now, Augustine said a very, very big clear, no, that's wrong, Pelagius. That is a serious distortion of the gospel of grace. Why, he said. He said, look, Pelagius, you might think you're free, living in the beautiful, lovely part of Italy called Tuscany with all that wonderful food and all that wonderful wine and all that beautiful weather. That's great. But we in North Africa know that we're not free. We have terrible storms and earthquakes. We have fierce sun. We have cold winters. We are at, we're frightened and fearful of slave traders coming and, in, and uh, enslaving us. Our women are not safe. Our children are not slaves. My life, says Augustine, and the lives of my people are not free. And that's very interesting, isn't it? For Augustine, we might feel we're free, but in fact, we're in slavery, the slavery of the will. You see, what Augustine focused on was something very, very important. For him, the key verse was the verse of Paul in chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians. Paul asked the Corinthian church, what is it that you have that you do did not receive? What is it that you have that you did not receive? Meaning, Paul's saying, everything you have is the gift and the grace of God. There is nothing which is not of grace. And for Augustine, that meant three things. First of all, what he called grace initiating grace. That is, grace goes before us, before our conversion. When we are still sinners, Christ died for us, as Paul would say. And that grace, God out of love chooses us or predestines us for salvation and arranges and shapes our lives so that we will hear the gospel at just the right time and come to salvation and faith in Jesus Christ. Faith by itself being the gift of God. The second aspect of grace says Augustine, is converting grace. That is, the grace that actually accepts, the grace that actually means that we are born again, born from death to life. And that too, says Augustine, is the grace and the goodness and the gift of God. 
And the last thing, says Augustine, about grace is that it's persevering. That is, when we trust in Jesus Christ, he just doesn't stop his grace. It's not as if it's not as if conversion is of grace and the rest of the Christian life is by works or by our own selves. Rather, that grace actually means that grace shapes our whole life and turns us day by day more into Jesus Christ and means that we trust and persevere despite pains and difficulties and trials and sufferings until our dying breaths and thereby are saved. That, says Augustine, is grace alone. That, says Augustine, is amazing grace. So let's now turn from Augustine and indeed and focus now on ourselves today. And this is the third thing. What does it mean for us today? After all, we all, every Christian has heard the word grace. Maybe it was important in your own life, in your own conversion. We sing about grace all the time. But what's the impact it has on us today? And first of all, it is what we've seen earlier, the bondage or the slavery of the will. Grace means that we cannot choose God. Grace means that we're not free to make our own decisions about salvation and about spiritual things. Now that is very, very countercultural, isn't it, today? That is so countercultural because we feel, as modern people, I'm in charge. I will make the decisions about my own life. I am the master of my own destiny. If I choose Jesus Christ, that is my choice. If I don't, that is my, my choice. I will go down and I will choose what is best for me. And we, that is what the world tells us, isn't it? The world tells us every day. That is the, that is the nature even of advertisements today, isn't it? Go on. Be a consumer. Choose this because it's good. You have the freedom. You have the choice to choose. But the Bible tells us that that is not true. The only one who has the freedom to choose is God in Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that actually we are unfree. The Bible tells us that we are in chains in a prison called sin. And that only Jesus Christ himself can unlock those chains and bring us out of that prison. It is only in Jesus Christ, says the Bible, we find true freedom. It's something very important for us to remember. That actually we depend on God at every moment of our lives. The second thing we understand for us today is Jesus Christ. He is, as Paul says, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. That indescribable gift is 
Jesus Christ himself. After all, just think about Jesus for a moment. He is the Lord of glory. He enjoys heaven before he came to earth. And for our sakes, out of pure grace, he came down to earth. For our sakes, he died upon that cross. Where is it that we find grace at its best, most beautiful, most lovely? Well, we find it in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is something we need to look at again and again and again. Because, well, the cross is I crossed out. The cross is I crossed out. And the last thing we can focus on in our own lives is love. You see, again, human love is not love like divine love. See, when we love someone, we love someone because that someone is lovely and beautiful or pretty or strong or intelligent or something like that. We love someone because somebody is lovable. And we do not love someone who is unlovable. That is the nature of human love, isn't it? That's why, uh, that is what marital love is. We love someone whom we're attracted to. But the love of God, the grace of God, is not like that. God loves us even when we're unlovely, even when we're rebels against him. God loves us even when we're dead, and the sin that he hates is enough. That is the amazing character of divine love. Martin Luther said this, uh, taking Augustine to heart. The love of man comes into being through that which is pleasing to it. Meaning, we love someone because it looks good to us. It's nice to us. But, he says, the love of God does not find but creates what is pleasing to it. That is, God's love is unconditional and changes and transforms us. That is why grace is so amazing. Augustine, at the end of his great book, The Confession, says this, because his life is well transformed by the grace and the beauty and the love of God himself. And he says this, and it's a very beautiful and moving quotation. He tells God, Late have I loved you, O beauty so old and so new. Late have I loved you. You called out and shattered my deafness, you were radiant and resplendent. You put flight to my blindness. You were fragrant, and I drew my breath, and now I pant after you. I tasted you, and I feel hunger and thirst after you. You touched me, and I am set on fire to attain the peace 
which is yours. Amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have considered one of the great subjects, the subject of your grace. We thank you for your grace from the bottom of our hearts, that grace that has saved us, that grace that is found in our Lord Jesus Christ, that grace that is love, that grace that will get us to heaven. Help us to consider, day by day, the amazing riches of your grace. For Jesus' name's sake. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at busypc.sg.